NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Wait, are you gaming on a Chromebook? Yep. It's got a high-res 120 hertz display, plus this killer RGB keyboard. And I can access thousands of games anytime, anywhere. Stop playing. What? Get out of here. Huh? Yeah, I want you to stop playing and get out of here so I can game on that Chromebook. Got it. Discover the ultimate cloud gaming machine, a new kind of Chromebook. The great cricketer is a Twitter stream. It's about playing cricket at the grade level. It's a tough, mean, dirty, dirty business being a great cricketer. A lot of cricketers, you know, that's all they know. They've mm. done it since they're 10 and they have a deep-seated fear of change. But the great cricket is all about being the most alpha version of yourself as possible at all costs and at all times. I don't bat or bowl. I just feel the gully, count the number of dot balls in a row, sledge 15 yards, make me feel better about myself. Thanks, Thanks champ. champ. Oh, no, you called me champ. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Grey Cricketer Podcast on Fox Sports. It's a terrific show this week. The Shield, the second round of the Shield, Mitchell Stark taking hat-tricks everywhere. England have landed, they've started playing cricket, and they've also got some rules for boozing. Adam Collins is on the show, and uh, Pez has done a very special one-on-one with friend of the show, Daniel Norcross, all about English cricket, because we need to know everything about England. Always know your, always know your opposition. I've always said that. Hashtag AskTGC, and we've got a very special product that we're going to launch this week. TGC, the new cologne by TGC. My name is Ian Higgins. I'm joined by Dave Edwards and Sam Perry. Lads, fourth one of the summer. Here we are. We've made it. It's a step closer to the first test match of the Gabba. Very good. Here goes. Yeah, very much so. Hello and welcome to everybody out there. It's just, I mean... Again, an inspiring introduction from you. He goes, making cricket sound interesting. I do feel like it's just <laughs> been another week where we're just waiting for the Ashes to start, aren't we? And just inventing narrative, to use that word, that cliche classic narrative. We were just sort of watching the Australian players, seeing how they were going this week. They're all doing fairly well, aren't they? I mean, we're none the wiser as to the major question, which is who will be six and seven. I don't even know if you want to go over mm-hmm. it because it's so boring. You know, you had like, like mm. Warner's untouchable in the side. He'll play. Kawaja's already hit a ton. Same goes Smith. Hanscom's got a daddy 50 or two. Maxwell got two 60s. <laughs> then there's nothing. <laughs> and then come and start line and Hazelwood, you know, are, are already a lock and dominating opposition. Um, sounds like, looks like Wade is gone from the side. He's really struggling. And... The Renshaw situation labours on because he doesn't have levers. We already talked about that. I wanted to. I wanted to say, it's kind of like it must be hard for the Australian players going into these Shield matches because it's almost like they're like reapplying for their jobs. Do you know what I mean? They're like mm-hmm. they're like uh, having to sort of, like they've got these good CVs and whatever, but they have to put their CVs in again. And then there's all these other CVs coming into the side. You know, like 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 Sean Marsh, for example, he puts his CV in every week. And it's like he got a really great mark in the HSC as a kid. Like he's sort of 99.94, HSC, whatever equivalent of like a school leaving mark was. Yeah. But he hasn't been able to hold down a job since. 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good analogy, Pez. It is a little bit like, you know, if you work at a satellite office and your, your boss from overseas, the big dog in like the US or the European headquarters comes over for like a week and he just hangs out in your office. And he's not doing much, is he? So, you know, he's kind of hanging around. You're, you're getting your work done. You're just going by your day to day. And the big dog is just uh, he's in your team. <laughs> he's in your office. He's next to you. He's using his laptop. He's asking you what the Wi-Fi code is. Suddenly you're on his level. And um, I think that's a little bit like what it's like playing with a test player if you're a shield bloke. But there's, um, there's a lot of them floating around. There's been a lot of uh, narratives to draw upon, uh, not just for us, but you know any kind of cricket pundit going around. And I think the biggest thing uh, over the last day or so was probably the Stark double hat-trick. Two hat-tricks in one game. I mean, guys, we've been talking about how this summer is just going to be alpha, 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 but that is a very, very, very ominous warning to England's lower order, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe not the real batsman, but certainly for the lower order batsman. <laughs> there is um, there is something wonderful about having Mitchell Stark who can just clean up a tail. I think that's what Mitchell Johnson did so well in the last Ashes series that was in Australia, um, is that the tail really didn't wag at all, and it wasn't allowed to wag. And when you've got a guy who's skilled as Mitchell Stark bowling around the wicket, that sort of reverse swinging, attacking the stumps, L-beads and bowls into the equation. like Guys like Stuart Broad, who has no doubt lost his batting ability in some respects pretty much ever since he got hit in the head I think it was by against Pakistani like he's he's really struggled to score runs but he's still a dangerous guy who can score 40 50 60 quickly yep. but when you get Stark who can throw in a bumper then throw in a you know reverse swing Yorker I don't fancy the likes of uh, even even as even as high as Wokes down to Anderson scoring many runs when uh, when Stark's got his tail up um the double hat trick, though, we, that is apparently it's only ever happened seven times in the history of professional cricket um, before Mitchell Stark did it on uh, or, or during the week. So that is, um, I guess we've, I guess we've seen history. It's funny. I mean, there's something about this Sheffield Shield season or the, the first two games that are just throwing up narratives that are ending up becoming like people's worry about the whole Ashes series. So Stark did nothing the week before, really. Oh, actually, wait. He got eight for. <laughs> um, <laughs> but compared nothing. to a double hat trick, that's nothing. Uh, <laughs> but this week it was Jake Lehman scoring a hundred or a ninety. Uh, like there's never been a better time to get a spot in the Australian batting lineup. Like you score, you make one or two scores, and your name is up in lights. I mean, particularly helpful for him given his last name is Lehman, and he seems to have all the affect of his dad, which <laughs> endears him to me greatly. Mm. Uh, I mean. A lot of people on the uh, like the TGC Twitter line, <laughs> yeah, Facebook yeah. line have um, yeah. have asked us for our views on Lehman Jake. That is in the Australian side in relation to his dad. Do, do we have any uh, views on that? I'm not sure I've got any strong views about the the, the Darren Lehman Jake Lehman situation, other than just don't, doesn't Australia just love a bolter? Like, and this is like these three Shield games. You know, the, the story has quickly gone from mm-hmm. how come our best players. Uh, you know, Klinger, White, Cowan, etc., aren't playing. To all of a sudden, who's like, who's who's the wicketkeeper bolter? You know, like Cameron Bancroft, all of a sudden's in the picture. Mm-hmm. Even like Carey was like the, the third choice. You know, Tim Payne, possibly yeah. the best gloveman of the country, standing at first slip to Matthew Wade, who's looks like he's no chance. But now, now, but now, Jake Lehman, like he's. I recognise his name, yeah. therefore that helps me immediately. I don't have to learn a new player's name. I recognise the <laughs> mm, name. Mm. And we just love a bolter, yeah. just someone out of nowhere, someone we can get behind because we think that, like, well, if I've never heard of this bloke, that means that that could be me. 
Well, it takes the effort off you having to do research on his career and, you know, go trawl through his statistics over the last few years or something. If he just does something in the immediate week leading up to the Ashes, then you can kind of hinge everything on him. But I think on the Jake Lehman thing, my only real opinion on that is if he plays for Australia under his dad, then we'll probably have another 10 years of dad joke material and probably another two or three books in us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, And then that's why we're commencing our campaign to get Jake Lehman into the side uh, for business purposes purely. I do like the idea that name recognition really helps people get into the side. It's like quite, it's a bit of a political communication concept as well. It's like, like Tony Abbott with stop the boats, etc. Just Jake Lehman immediately makes yeah. you think of Darren uh, and therefore his prospects have uh, inflated greatly. So I wonder, chaps, um, I mean, Callum Ferguson scored 180. Now, now some, some of the fans out there will recognise Callum Ferguson. I, I, I sort of remember that name. Mm-hmm. He did play one test match for Australia once, and you're probably thinking, was that, was that in the mid-90s when Gavin Robinson played? And no, actually it wasn't. He played, <laughs> he played one test match last summer against South Africa in a day-night test match. No, no, he played in the Hobart test match, wasn't it, when we, we got bowled for 7-30 and 30, um, against Rabada. Yeah, and to yeah. be fair, Cal Ferguson did run himself out, the second innings, I think it was the second innings, but um, so so he was he was picked as like a guy who who could have made it. He, you know, he, he could have he could have gone on to be our next you know number four, five, yeah, six yep. in the middle order, mm. but but he wasn't ready. Now he's just scored one hundred and eighty, but no, nah, but he's, he had a go. He had a go, so he he can't be picked again. He was the unlucky fall guy last year, wasn't he? I mean. We had that emotional, shocking collapse, which I'm only just recovering from. I don't know about you guys, but um, <laughs> look, Ferguson's been around for a long time. And if we're looking at guys, bolters, as you say, he goes like Lehman and Bancroft. Yeah. We probably need to take mm. another look at Ferguson because he has done his time. Granted, he's not an alpha dog. Um, he's more of a proper batsman, which is ultimately to his detriment, given Australia's obsession with picking muscle-bound Adonises at number six, which can... You know, the kind of guys that can pump maximums at will. We actually wrote about this uh, in our weekly article for Fox Sports this week about how we are having some issues with the number six batsman. That batsman now is is kind of lacking an identity. Number three, the number three is the best batsman. Number four is the most elegant. Number five is the, the best against spin. No kid wants to be a number six. So we've been struggling to fill that role for, for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ferguson situation is a particularly interesting one, um, and he goes, I'm reminded of what you were just saying before. So he got run out in very dubious and kind of like alarming, frightening circumstances last year, and then when made a, made 180 the other day. But does the run out loom larger in our memory than the 180? Probably. Mm-hmm. And in that vein, Dave, you were talking about identity at number six. Like I noted, he goes when you were talking, you stopped mm-hmm. referring to him as Callum Ferguson, and you started referring to him as Cal. Mm-hmm. And I think this has been a little bit of a brand shift for him. I've noticed in the last year or two he's become Cal Ferguson right. and like yeah. and full credit to him because he's had to move away from the identity as this sort of spindly, wiry, proper batsman to something to a name that resembles more someone who would lift, you know, yeah. copious weights at Muscle Beach. Well, it's funny he's yeah, Cal yeah. now. Because Callum is quite he's a so con- contemporary name. Like uh, I'm probably you know, without mm. checking the, the stats, it's probably in the top one hundred names for boys um, in two thousand and seventeen. Mm. So mm. I think that mm. um Cal is yeah, certainly He's in need of a brand shift, though, isn't he? I'm getting the wrap up for some reason. I think he. I, th- I, th- <laughs> I think he's definitely going through some sort of midlife crisis. You know, some guys buy leather jackets, other guys ch- shorten their name to three letters. Um, says Ian Higgins. Um, boys, uh, England. Uh, they're, they're playing cricket. Uh, they're playing cricket at the moment, um, and that's. Uh, can we take much away from them playing against the waxy? 
the WA eleven. It was it was like a, almost like a second eleven. I recognise one name from speaking of recognising names. I recognise one name, uh, Coulton Isle, uh, who snicked off Alistair Cook's second ball of the match. But um, just just now, I'm just yeah, I recognise someone. Um, England playing cricket. Uh, anything to take away? Yeah, I mean, Cook failed second ball, therefore that's what's going to happen to him all series. I mean, that's really the rhythm of the media uh, in the lead-up to the Ashes. Whatever happens mm-hmm. in one week will therefore happen for the rest. Uh, <laughs> having said that, as we as we go to where he's, he did fail again against Caxi, uh, so I don't know. Um, you know, Anderson got fourfer. Yeah. I think Stuart Gord got kind of pumped. Um, yeah, and Mason Crane got some wickets. So therefore, that's mm. what's going to happen all series. Is it hard to read yeah. into the results of a tour match? Do, we, do we still kind of do that? I'm sure it's like kind of like the old days when Bradman and, and Co would land in England, and they'd probably have like 60 tour games before they even had the first test. Um, and I guess people watched that closely and studied his form and so forth. But if Cook snicked off twice in in two innings, then you know he's absolutely rubbish, isn't he? Alarm bells are ringing. I mean, I'd say he's in the same scenario, in the same boat as Renshaw now. Mm. Two failures and, (laughs) uh, you know, who's going to come in? Maybe James Vince comes in for him. I think the tour games, like, I know that, I think it was Bearstow and uh, someone else retired at lunch and then they gave, like, Vince and Overton a turn to have a hit. So it's like, uh, you know, I I think, you know, we can only take so much away from what happens in that game. Um, But uh, it's also, I find it weird that we we put we, we, like the Australian people, have just put them on the whacker first up. We're just we're going to bump you from day one, you blokes. <laughs> yeah. They've never played on a hard wicket um, ever. We just assume that of English people. Like he has toured here at least five or six yeah. times. Get off the front door. It, it is fun in this like commercial age to read between the lines of why teams have been put on particular grounds. Like you said that about the Wacker, and then mm. uh, and then also. Um, you know, England have played against a WA second eleven basically, mm. while the New South Wales team, which we all understand on this show, is the Australian team played against the actual <laughs> WA side. And then going into this, going into the first test, New South Wales will play against Queensland on the Gabba. Mm. Uh, yeah. Interesting, given the first test is at the Gabba. You know, all these little advantages. <laughs> like we we cry foul so much whenever we go to India or any other country yeah. about yeah. how unfair it is, and we do the yeah. same thing and just turn a blind eye to it. It, it, oh, actually, yeah. we find it funny, mm. and it makes us happy. Yeah, yeah. But what about the time Stuart Broad didn't walk? Um, so anyway, there's there also some other. There's also some. Uh, there's been some rules come out of England today. Some rules come out of England today, just like this is a Commonwealth country. They some laws. They don't mind the laws, and you know, Commonwealth, Commonwealth government uh, means that we have to uh, take them on as well. Um, rules, rules for boozing. Uh, who knows about this? Who knows about rules for boozing on the England tour? Well, a good friend of the show, Brett Jeeves, wrote a piece recently uh, yes. around some like, – like, it seemed like a bit of a PR thing, he goes. That there was information mm-hmm. released to the media and therefore mm-hmm. the public about mm-hmm. uh, England – England senior players or their team having established some light rules around their boozing culture or what that what they will and won't do with boozing, and it really amounted to just this common sense approach, mm. almost as though sort of they just decide, look, we need to let people know that yeah, we're going to be having drinks, but you know, not too much. And Trevor Bayliss, who's their coach, the Australian <laughs> coach. He kind of came in on a bit of a man, like for background, he came in on a bit of a mandate to like chill out a little bit because their previous coach Andy Flower. Why are you guys laughing? Am I like Sorry, slowing just, down and speeding up? Few drinks, but not, too not too much. Not too yeah, much. Yeah. Not too much. It's the kind of thing you say at the office. Sorry. Like, well, I'm just going to go out for one or two, but not too much. <laughs> Have some milk. Line your stomach. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of like their policy. And Trevor Bayliss came in 
uh, on a mandate of like chilling out a little bit because Andy <laughs> Flower was like a really hardline military guy. Mm. Uh, so yeah. it was just strange. And then Brett Jeeves wrote this piece about just the uneasy relationship between alcohol and cricket. Like you can't, re- even if it is a light approach, you can't really tell adults what they can and can't do when it comes to drinks and alcohol. Mm. And I thought, you know, that just is, <laughs> was right in our wheelhouse about cricket and alcohol. I mean, did you guys yeah. in your playing careers ever have a relationship between the two? Of of course, Pez. I mean, you still remind me occasionally of the one time I turn up to a PG's game in a cricket vest with a huge wine stain on it. Um, I'd been at a house party. Oh, you beat me the night You've before. You beat me to the punch. Yeah. <laughs> it's I, was, the I, I think I was at a, um, a house party the night before, dressed as a cricketer. And um, obviously, at some point, I'd knocked a glass of wine on myself. So turning up with that vest probably. Well, it earned me a great deal of social capital, hopefully with yourself and, and maybe with some of the other cricketers that I played with. In retrospect, it was probably a cry for help. Um, yeah, yeah. Both, both is possible. Both are, both are possible. Well, reason- yeah, you were standing in front of the Pratton Park scoreboard before an under-21s match on, on Sunday yeah. where people do traditionally turn up drunk, but it was raining, so there was a real yeah. like bleakness to the day. And we turned up. You were sort of there early, which is um, odd for you. And we're all kind of crowded around you. You were, you were holding court yeah. as the, uh, like whether it was the Chop King or otherwise, but also because you were just sort of this tall figure with nothing but a vest on, like a sleeveless vest <laughs> with your arms coming yeah. up and, and a huge red wine stain on your North Sydney vest. Like we're all told to turn up in our track suits and, and a proper yeah. club kit. And you just had shorts, thongs and a vest. Well, well I was one of the older players, Pez, in the under-21s team. So I was obviously setting an example for the young kids as you do when you're the elder statesman i mean the reason i used to drink before games was to have a ready-made excuse in the event that i failed it's a protective mechanism i mean uh, i think any any self-respecting great cricketer with an alcohol problem would say the same there's some sort of delicious irony edos about you dressing at a party as the cricketer like this is probably like this is probably like seven years before you became part of the great cricketer i was always very self-aware even in pgs <laughs> I like the idea that the cricket is like this novel uh, image as well, like this novel yeah. character, yeah. like as if you'd be a cricketer. No. I'll go as a cricketer to a Halloween yeah. party. Other people went with like Andy Warhol. I just thought it was the cricketer. <laughs> Very postmodern. Uh, a guy that I used to play with always used to say, uh, light beers after 2am, which is a message that I've carried on um, ever since. <laughs> so um, that's that's actually a good one for the kids out there. If you are going to drink on a Friday night, yeah. light beers after 2am. Yeah. Um, chaps, uh, just one more thing before we get to uh, Adam Collins uh, to talk seriously about cricket uh, for just a wee moment. Uh, Ashes Cricket on uh, on PlayStation and Xbox, I presume, and all uh, high-definition computer, ga- computer games. That just dated me, didn't it? Um, going well on, a, then. on a floppy disk. Yeah, it was going, yeah, everything was going well. Not my own life, just this monologue. Um, Ashes Cricket, are you guys excited to be playing cricket games on on, uh, on computer games? <laughs> <laughs> cricket games on computer games. You're only 31. Oh, like, how have you just got no yeah. idea about technology? Uh, I, I, I like the use of the term computer. I try and use it more these days. Yeah. Uh, mm. Am I excited? No, look, no, not at all. I don't play computer games, mainly because it's kind of like gambling it's mainly because i'm scared that i'll just want to do it all the time mm-hmm. but um i just use alcohol for that but um <laughs> yeah it's like it's always fun to see a cricket game like a game that you like yeah. with some really like high definition graphics and stuff but you know that the trailers always look better than the actual gameplay and speaking to some people i mean this actually isn't an ad placement in case anyone's listening <laughs> at all but um <laughs> speaking to people who have reviewed the game 
they get really serious about the like real lifelike qualities of the game, like like computer games. God, what's the other word for computer games? <laughs> video games. You don't need another. Just go with that one. Yeah. Okay. The thing with computer games these days is like they have such a lifelike quality to them. <laughs> such a lifelike quality to yeah, them. Yeah. And like someone was telling me about like you know those shoot 'em up games are like so lifelike these days mm. that yeah. um. It's even hard to distinguish from reality, and FIFA's the same as that as well. Like, in these shooter games, there's this one where you can, like, find a dog or something and start petting the dog and taking the dog around with you, and it becomes just, like, everyday life. So I figured if the Ashes game is only about playing cricket, then it's not really capturing the whole essence of what it means to play cricket. And I'd want to know whether that Ashes game could actually... Like, if if there could be a cricket game that actually simulates real-life cricket... You know, like, um, you know, playing, going through grade cricket, going through junior cricket. You know, can you can you have a video game where you can go through junior cricket, be given out by dads, you know, that hate you because you're sort of half decent and they don't know the rules of LBW and, you know, how you deal with that. Or, like, you've got to wash, you know, do you wash your whites the night before and turn up without, like, clean whites and get sledged by people. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. did you mm-hmm. put petrol in your car? Do you have to organise a lift? Like, I'd buy the shit out of that game. Yeah, I'd buy the game that is all about everything except the actual playing of it. Like, so I don't actually want to like you know press enter to hit the ball or anything. I don't want any any game related experience. Enter. I just want the whole social dynamics experience. You know, through through a, through a computer game. If you can make something like that, then I'm interested. But I've got no interest. I mean, for me, the the, the last computer game I played was Cricket '96, and that was probably as close as it got to real life because I remember the the commentators were talking about things like divorce and alimony payments. Yeah. So that was probably actually ahead of its time um, in terms of yeah. computer games and that it kind of cusped on real life cricketing experiences. Um, I was an 11 year old boy playing that. So it was a little bit interesting um, at the time, but it stuck with me. I didn't know what alimony meant either, but looking back, it was bang on because it's really just about child support payments and stuff. So uh, I don't know who they were referencing, but I did yeah. like it. Yeah. Are they getting? Is Cricket ninety six the, the the producers who made that show? Are they getting royalties from our book? Because it feels like from a young age that was ingrained in our brain. But I mean, obviously, there's people screaming at their uh, podcast devices as we speak because everyone knows that the greatest cricket game ever was Shane Warne Cricket ninety nine or Brian Lara Cricket ninety nine. If you're from the UK, that was that was without a doubt the greatest cricket game of all time. It was the same product, wasn't it? It was a white label product, so they just put the like Brian Lara and Shane Warne. They just put their names to it, and there was some gentle tweaks mm. done. It was they weren't separate games, mm. were they? That was a misconception. Yeah, no, it was no. white label. It was same white game. label. White label was, was a great was white a great label. term. Yeah, it was a white label product. White label product. I, I just quick. I just quickly want to go back. He goes to, if mm. that's possible to, of course, the sort of things you'd like to see in a cricket game. Yeah. Like I'd like to, you know, career mode really because they have this for FIFA. Mm. You know, nets Tuesday, Thursday. Which net mm. do you get in? Uh, you know, can you avoid the fast bowler? Yeah. You know, in the in the first net, like oh, I'd really play that. You know, do you drink the night before, or do you take the Pepsi challenge? <laughs> and if so, then that, how you manage yourself on the circuit. You know, there's a similar type of thing in like the 2K franchise. I mean, we're obviously NBA fans here on this podcast, yeah. but like the, you know, the, mm. the NBA 2K franchise, where like the, the player mode has to like get out of the streets basically, and this is very much the same thing, except you basically get out of your own head. You know, you've got to get out of your own thoughts. Yeah. Uh, and then you basically, like, I think I think beating the game is you stop playing. That's when you win. Mm. Yeah. Well, you play the boss level. Like, the, the last thing is you just come up against the club president and just say, I'm, I'm just stopping. I'm never playing again. Can I please stop playing? <laughs> I 
Well, on that note, uh, speaking of pumping uh, money into useless things, we are, of course, uh, trying to expand the business here. So we thought that, um, you know, in case you didn't know, there is a book out. Um, we, we want you to like that. We want you to like our Instagram page, our Twitter page, and our Facebook page. But we also want you to buy our new product. It's a cologne. <laughs> and we thought we might put together a little ad for it. Adam Collins coming up after this. I don't play cricket for results. I don't come to take wickets, score runs, or win games. I play cricket to look good. Rigs, chests, pipes, circuits, salads. This is my domain. So when I hit the sheds, I need to radiate success. That's why I use Chop King Cologne by TGC. With a blend of the finest handcrafted English willow and Kookaburra Red King leather, Chop King Cologne lets me radiate cricket. Whatever the ground, whatever the circuit. Chop King Cologne. The new fragrance for men by TGC. Reek of runs without hitting them. Well, it's our pleasure to have on the podcast again, Adam Collins, one of the best voices in the game. To tell us what's actually happening in cricket, Colo is in Australia now. Last time he joined us, he was in the UK. Uh, he's staying close to the cricket over there. I believe he's in North Sydney at the moment following the women's ashes. We're going to talk about that. Colo, welcome back to The Great Cricketer. How are you? G'day, Sam. One, I'm wonderful. It's a very kind introduction. I, and I'm at North Sydney. I just walked past North Sydney Oval number two, so I'm sure that plenty of um, great cricket's been played over there um, over over the last over, over your whole career, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, I've played a little bit, uh, and and just to <laughs> played a little bit there. And I, I suppose for background for the listeners, I just spent about five minutes describing to Colo uh, a couple of good innings I played at North Sydney Number Two. Nothing about the bad stuff though, uh, and, and there was plenty of that. But let's not go into it. Let's not go into it, Colo. You. <laughs> Uh, you know, your, your best friends do your PR for you, you know, but um, sadly, Dave and Higos can't join us for this interview. So let's, um, you know, do that another time. But, Colo, you are at North Sydney Oval. It's ahead of the Women's Ashes test. Um, we need to know more about this kind of stuff. Can you just give us a bit of a primer on on this test? It's a pink ball test. Australia leads the series 4-2, as far as I understand. If they win, then they if they win this game, they win the Ashes. Um, can you just give us a bit of a background on what we can expect heading into this test? Yeah, sure. No worries. Well, yeah, it is 4-2. There's the multi-format point series, which means the, the white ball internationals, of which there are six three-one days and three T20s, are worth two points. Uh, and the test match is worth four. It's the third time they've had a crack at this, where they've played all three series uh, for the Women's Ashes Trophy. I think what might be worthwhile, instead of giving you a primer on um, the Ashes itself, is to say where women's cricket's at to begin with, because mm-hmm. the World Cup we had this year was an outrageous success. There were um, upwards of 50 million people tuned into some version of um, the World Cup uh, broadcast around the world. It's up to, I think, 150 countries showed it in one, one way, shape or form or another. So, I mean, it's in a very healthy spot and, and the Women's Ashes are, are a direct extension of that. The TV numbers that came in through Channel 9 during the week who did the, the one-days were brilliant as well. The Women's Big Bash League, um, they're talking about giving that its own um, isolated window in October during future Australian summers. So it's going great guns. And, and as I said, this Women's Ashes is an extension of that. Anyone who's followed the women's game for a long time can see like a pronounced improvement in the style of play as well. Um, both of these sides are fully professional. Australia going professional a couple of years ago in England as well. 
Um, so as a consequence of that, um, they're not juggling it with study or part-time jobs or anything like that. Cricket is their life, and, and it's really had an effect on, on the product that we're seeing at the moment. It's, it, is, it is wonderful to hear, and being over here in London as well, I very much caught the, uh, the spirit of the Women's World Cup over here. It was uh, a really excellent tournament. Australia now lead England. I mean, let's talk about winning, Colo. I, I know before the series... Beat said- England. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hashtag beat England in any format, anywhere, anytime, in any context. You were saying off air to me a few weeks ago, Colo, that you sort of tipped England. You know, you're close to both sides. You tipped England for this Ashes. Australia lead heading into this test. Uh, what can we expect? I mean, who's, who's favourites? Uh, you know, who, who's poised to do damage with the pink ball? Run us through it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an interesting question. The neither side have played with the pink ball before. It's the first women's game played um, under lights in a test match before. They play so little test cricket. The English captain, uh, Heather Knight, said today she's played for England for seven years for five test matches, which gives her a bit of a flavour of that. The last time there was a women's test match was in the August of 2015 in Canterbury. That was a shocker. It was a, a test match Australia won comfortably, but it was a terrible pitch. And um, a, a lot of the sort of the, the talk around women's cricket is they need to have um, competitive fast, bouncy wickets to make sure they get a chance to display their skills and, and the like. So uh, I think we're going to get that at North Sydney, which should um, probably favour England a little bit because they've got a, a stronger pace division. Uh, Catherine Brunt and Anya Shrubsole, they're, they're, they're the two. That, that's the best opening partnership in the world. They've got Kate Cross, who'll probably come in as well as the third team. She's got a wonderful test record. Having said that, home soil being played in Sydney, half the sides for New South Wales. I mean, obviously, um, that, that's going to play into it at some stage as well. Um, and, and I think that Australia do realise, obviously, they only need to win this test match and they'll, they'll make the, um, the T20s irrelevant because they'll already have an eight-point... Well, they would have accrued eight points and in a 16-point competition, having the Ashes from 2015, that'll be enough to retain the trophy. So no need for incentive there. And from a promotional point of view, mate, like I've caught a fair few articles heading into this match. I've seen uh, Mel Jones do a really good piece in The Guardian also talking about Molly Dive, you know, for whom one of the major, the biggest, uh, most important stand at North Sydney Oval is named after her. She she captained the Australian side in her first test match in 1948, uh, scored like a double ton in 180 minutes or something like that. Uh, mm. You know, is, is there, what's the attention like on this match back at home in Australia? I mean, are, are people getting around this? What are we expecting from a crowd point of view, TV point of view? Um, you know, can you just sort of explain a little bit of that to us? Yep. Well, it's a bit to unpack there. I think with, well, television it's not on. Regrettably, um, Channel 9 aren't showing this. They, they showed the uh, white ball games and will show the T20s, but this is only on a live stream through the, the Cricket Australia website. So whilst that'll still be in high definition and all the bells and whistles, it's not literally on, on the box, which, which may hurt a wee bit. Um, crowds have been good, decent, considering two of these games are played in Coffs Harbour um, with a population of roughly 70,000, I think it is. Um, it's not a bad effort to get a turnout there. Um, the broader interest and in promotion is significantly more than 13, 14. And I think the, the main reason behind that is this is being played again as like a primer for the men's ashes. They've nailed the timing. It's leading, it finishes two days before um, the Brisbane Test match, which means there is a, a decent amount of coverage being devoted to it. Um, both here and, and in England. And, and as I mentioned before, I think the World Cup had a lot to do with that. It was probably the, the first time that women's cricket was on Broadway, as it were. It was in the middle of the year. Um, there was no men's cricket to compete with it, um, and people were able to sort of devote some attention to learning the game. And I should add, by the way, like, I'm part of that. Like, even though I've been, you know, covering cricket for a while, I only really started investing in women's cricket uh, a couple of years ago, and, and, and I was sort of drawn to it. Um, pretty strongly when I was, and, and it's quite common for people. They uh, have loved the game and loved the men's game, and, and, and they've came to women's cricket perhaps a little bit later in life, and they realise that going back to 
watching cricket, which um, perhaps relies a bit more on technique rather than power, is quite comforting, and uh, and I really enjoy it. Which isn't to say there isn't power as well. Some of these players um, have an enormous amount of reach and can clear the pickets on, you know, women's boundaries, men's boundaries, any boundaries. Like Nat Sibber, um, the England all-rounder, she hits it the, the better part of 80 metres. Likewise, Ashley Gardner, um, the New South Welshman, who she, well, she's incredible as well. She's 20 years old. She was the young cricketer of the year this year, and she'll make her debut for Australia in Test cricket tomorrow as well. So there's a nice combination between, I guess, elegance and power. Yeah, actually, that's a really nice way of putting it. I've watched some women's cricket as well and really enjoyed the focus on technique over power uh, and, and some of the old ways of understanding cricket. I would say old, you know, I, I suppose mm. traditional ways is a better word of understanding cricket really does apply to women's cricket yep. for the better, I believe. Uh, <laughs> speaking yeah, of that. And, 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 it, and it's, probably, it's probably one more sort of string to that, which is that uh, women's cricket relies on using the pace of the ball, which is there. So um, by that, what I mean is they play more 360. You see tons of sweeping and reverse sweeping, especially this England side. I spoke to their batting coach last week, and that's kind of their whole philosophy. If we can't um, ping it down the ground, let's use the pace of the ball, and that's why they all lap and reverse routinely, and they've got it down to a fine art. So it's not uh, a risk-taking shot for them anymore, and, and that's something that hasn't quite been the case in men's cricket. Men's cricket's still about getting as much bat on it as you can and hoping to clear the rope where... Like, it's a little subtle differences between men's and women's cricket when you pick up after watching it for a while, which, yeah, can be quite, quite enjoyable. <laughs> That's an amazing breakdown, mate, and I really appreciate it. Uh, speaking of clearing the rope, uh, Graham Swans tried to do that this week with his comments on Ben Stokes. I mean, I know it, it's all getting a little bit boring, I suppose, but I wonder if that's part of the uh, PR tactics from England here. Uh, Swans come out this week and said that he fully expects Ben Stokes to play in the Ashes uh, if he's not charged after his arrest in Bristol. I know that you know there's certain things you can and can't say about it just because it's a police matter, etc. Mm. But Swan's come out anyway and said that he personally thinks Ben will be back and playing in the Ashes. He goes on to say he can't see any reason why not. Oh, I could see a few, but um, you know each to their own. He says if he's not in court, he should be out there. If he's not been charged, then he should be playing for England. He's one of the best players in the world, and he fully expects him to be playing. I mean, is there any part of that where he says he's expected, he's expecting Stokes to play? Is, is he revealing a little bit about what he, you know, what might be going on behind the scenes here? Yeah, well, I can't comment on the case, as you say, but I certainly can comment on the media background to it. And, and mm. I mean, the, the, the Sun story um, a couple of Saturdays ago, which kind of broke this open with another angle with the, the, the two fellas in the club who Stokes allegedly had um, been, uh, been, been protecting at the time. And uh, I don't know, for whatever reason, that seemed to take some of the sting out of this, as you say, it kind of gave um, the sense there might be some sort of mitigating factor and all the rest of it. Um, and, and I think that's where, where Graham's comments directly stem from. It, it looks as though, well, it doesn't look as though anything. There's been no charges pressed so far. How long has it been? Eight, nine weeks now? So mm. if they're going to press charges, that they, they, they're going to have to do it soon in order to get them in before the first test in Brisbane. Whether that extends to them chucking him on, a, on, the, on, on the Concord and getting him to Brisbane at the, you know, the last minute, so to speak, um, that's, that's sort of another thing altogether because, as we talked about last time on the show, it isn't just about the, the legal elements of this. There's also the, the, the circus that will ensue, would, will ensue if, if, um, if Stokes plays. So he's absolutely right to say that he's one of the best players in the world, and I'm sure there'll be people uh, at ECB HQ who are, who are hatching a plan, but Trevor Bayless is probably uh, a more... Uh, a more a worthwhile barometer on this and his commentary over the weekend, the England coach, was that they don't expect him to come. They're not planning for him to be here and I think that's kind of case closed as far as the touring party are concerned. But having said that, uh, you know, you couldn't rule out another twist in this story. Um, so far, um, we've had every possible, you know, connotation and permutation thrown up there but nothing's actually happened. So we're yet to actually see any mm. formal action with the, with the exception of him being suspended in the first place. 
Colo, an excellent analysis again. Thanks so much for coming on The Great Cricketer and telling us what's actually going on in the game. How are you finding your return to Australia, uh, having returned from London a few weeks ago? Oh, brilliant, mate. Well, I did read your book uh, on the way back, actually, which has probably meant my behaviours regressed significantly. Uh, I've really fallen back into old red cricketer patterns. I want to play. I've been dreaming about cricket. I've been champing everyone. I'm an absolute disgrace. So, so thanks for that. But apart from that, I'm going well. <laughs> Glad. Always always happy to provide a service to people to make them feel worse and want to uh, go back and achieve, achieve dreams that are dead. Uh, Adam Collins, thank you for joining the Great Cricketer Podcast, mate. I will catch you next time. My pleasure. We grade cricketers work hard. Everything has to be hard at all times. Work hard. Circuit hard. Just be hard. Never smart. Always hard. Hard yakker indeed. Pez here with a quick note about what you're going to hear. Uh, This is not our normal interview format, but it is a very special one. A few weeks ago, I had the chance to have a few beers with Dan Norcross, who's one of the best commentators in world cricket. He's with BBC Test Match Special. I kind of think he's like the Stephen Fry of cricket in many ways. I don't know what that means to him. He's probably offended by it. Uh, Nevertheless, it's part of an ongoing series. It's loosely called the Overseas Pro at the moment, but if you guys have better ideas, then please let me know. Uh, The chat went... Uh, for a significant period of time but don't worry it's been edited it doesn't go for that long um, but you will note that it jumps around for that reason Uh, with that in mind i hope you enjoy the chat uh, with dan norcross it's called the overseas pro but also tell me if it should be called something else well to everybody listening welcome to the overseas pro uh, a new venture on behalf of the grade cricketers and me sam perry many of you will have heard that i'm over here in london and essentially just feeling left out as far as i'm concerned so uh, I'm going to do a few one-on-ones with people over here who are interesting. The man who sits opposite me is, uh, well, he's intimidating, uh, and you'll you'll soon find out why, uh, because what I'm doing with him is exactly what he does uh, and more for his role. I'm talking about Dan Norcross, uh, commentary member of BBC TMS Test Match Special. For those who don't know, he's about to go over to the Ashes to commentate on Australia versus England. Uh, he's just lighting up a cigarette as he does this now, as I talk now. Uh, a rock and roll star, without doubt. And uh, for those who don't know BBC TMS, it's the preeminent commentary team in the world, I would say, globally. You're happy with that? Yeah, I'm happy with that. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ex- extremely prestigious, kind of similar to Grandstand, but uh, just with that English superiority, I would say. And yeah, I mean that's it's hard to really uh, be upset with that description. It's, it's I don't know how accurate it is, but it's uh, yeah, that's a good, that's a nice way of, of overblowing me. Yeah, exactly. I'm very happy with that. Very good. So well, that's speak. that's part of yeah. the setup. I mean, you're the the king, Dan, of painting pictures. We are sitting here in Tooting Beck, which is kind of your neck of the woods. We're in a pub called the Wheat Shaft. Uh, you may hear some of the whirring sounds of some generator or other, or uh, maybe police cars going past yeah there'll be, there'll be a few of those we're yeah. in tooting yeah. yeah so the sound isn't uh perfect but listeners should be used to that can you describe the the scene around us otherwise though dan i mean tell us about tooting beck tell yeah. us about this area well i mean what you what we see here is uh a, a very plucky attempt to remain reasonable amidst the miserable decay that is autumn in england where death is all around us darkness starts to envelop us in a gloomy fashion uh, crepuscular light will soon be upon us and uh, something close to a very morbid depression will take grip 
of this septic aisle. I want you to understand that there is something that I deeply resent about all of you, which is that when your country was discovered, not by your indigenous people, but by uh, my more immediate forebears oh, in the 18th century, I have no idea why it was that we didn't just place a wall around Britain and leave the convicts in and then go and escape to Australia. Uh, because for some bizarre reason, we turned down the opportunity to live in a gigantic island that's filled with gold and tin and copper and so which you've only just discovered has to be said the last 20 yeah. years nobody bothered digging around in australia until recently right. you were all ridiculously impoverished until someone went hi hi has anyone actually bothered looking underground and lo and sodding behold there are riches and there's warmth and there's being able to be outdoors all the time and play cricket and as a result be better i i, I, I quite genuinely i think that there should be a handicap system in cricket that if in England, as you know, Sam, from having been here now for long enough, in reality, you can be outside for about 66 days a year, if you're lucky, right? And in Australia, you can be outside for the best part of what, about 280? Yeah, depending so, on where you are, yeah. I kind of think, you know, I'm not gonna do it on a one-to-one -one basis, but I do think that England should start every test match with a 150 run advantage <laughs> per innings. <laughs> So I'd created this incredibly elaborate dice game in which, you know, every conceivable form of extra and every conceivable form of dismissal was available to you. It's an early version of uh, being able to put your own team in, uh, name into FIFA or it something is. like that, right? It is, but, uh, it is. More but the thing Dan Norcross's dice cricket. If you're cricket. rolling the die, you see, and you're doing John Arlen, you go, so here comes Lily, he comes steaming in from the Vauxhall and Norcross is facing. And you rolled a two and you go, goes back into his crease and plays it out into the offside and there's no run. The crowd's getting most energised now as the sun pokes out behind the clouds. His lily again, his shirt billowing in the breeze. Norcross waiting intent. So you roll a six and you're, you're still talking. And yeah. So then you get to roll again if it's yeah. six or five. Oh yes, roll again and it's four. And he's cracked it through the covers for four and Lily kicks the turf with frustration as Norcross moves into the 90s. You know, and uh, so you, you sort of, you were doing all that. Oh, that was ridiculous. I mean, thinking about it, I was probably actually mentally ill. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> Oh, mercifully you know, it was a 70s so no one talked about mental illness then you know <laughs> my mother would just come upstairs she'd hear me wittering and think oh god what have we done why didn't we abort him for a cricketer the great moment is to get the call from well today it would be in Australian terms here, Rod Marsh saying uh, son you're going to play for Australia in commentary terms, that's probably, you know, you're with us on the BBC, it might be a little bit of a slower process where you're kind of mm. eased in to the team. Uh, how did how do you become a commentator at the top level? <laughs> you know, well, well, I have so, no idea. I mean, I, <laughs> well, I, okay. can, I can try to describe yeah. my own experiences. We set up something called Test Match Sofa, and the idea was that... Um, people, male, female, middle-aged, young, old, balding, mostly balding, mostly overweight, uh, who loved their cricket. Like, don't forget, I, I also played cricket and was captain of cricket team, so I knew lots and lots of people who loved their cricket. Uh, we would do ball-by-ball -ball commentary, uh, but with none of the restrictions that you'd have being a proper broadcaster, because we are on the internet, and this meant that I could drink as much as I wanted, I could smoke 
constantly. I could shout at Kevin Peterson for playing a switch hit. I could where I felt it, warranted it, swear at Ricky Ponting. Um, I could, you know, let off steam. Uh, it got to be popular enough that the Cricketer magazine bought it and then um, put it on a more sure footing and paid me a salary. And then I realized I was actually doing this professionally. So it's a very roundabout way of answering your question. I mean, I suppose I became a cricket commentator. I became a cricket commentator when I was seven. I then became a cricket commentator again when I was 40. Yeah. And then I became a cricket commentator again when I was 44. And they were all very, very different sort of ways of doing it. The way you've come through to commentary is something I think people find really interesting because there's a huge conversation about that in Australia at the moment and you may be loath to talk about it for the forces that you've just described earlier but commentary in Australia is it's probably the same in England but it's a sort of thing where everybody it means a lot to a lot of people because it's the soundtrack to the things that you care about and there's been a huge discussion in the last couple of years about some of our more uh, higher profile commentators or commentary teams etc I'm talking about uh, Channel 9 and uh, even you know grandstand the ABC etc uh, it garners a lot of opinion um, as I said because people mm. care about it and you seem to have had this uh, passage through the commentary through the commentary based on repetition based on a little bit of enterprise based on humor and now you find yourself in the most prestigious commentary box of all yeah. and it doesn't surprise me that you uh, have sort of well it's probably 10 years hard 40 years hard work overnight success but have gone straight to the top there uh you know do you see yourself as a as a new wave of commentator um no i don't actually um i don't see it like that because you can only be what you are there was a piece of advice henry blofeld gave me which didn't surprise me and i found very easy to to maintain actually which is that you must always be yourself and the moment you start thinking that you are representing other people in what you do or that you've got some higher purpose and therefore you start thinking and analyzing how you commentate is the moment you won't sound natural anymore you won't be believable and people because people need to engage with broadcast voices they need to believe that the person they're listening to is real you know that, that you can instantly tell a phony you know the styles of commentary I find more irksome, uh, self-congratulatory and banterish and closed, you know, where essentially you're listening to two ex-cricketers who are mates of each other, uh, remembering incidents that they had with each other while doing commentary. I, I find that that's quite excluding of people. You mentioned there before, I still have a, a few things I want to find out from you though. Um, Mm. You mentioned before visualising the first test in Brisbane and what you might see. I mean, tell our listeners what you're expecting to see in Brisbane or in Australia uh, and how that might marry with what you would like to see right. uh, in Brisbane and Australia. I mean, what, what the Dan Norcross show is coming to Australia. Uh, well, what, a, what do you want? It's a voyage of discovery for me because yeah. I've only been to Australia once in 1998. Uh, so I, I think... I think, if I'm honest with myself, what I'm expecting to see is um, a touring side struggle, especially if it doesn't have Ben Stokes, and especially if Australia's fast bowlers stay fit. So if uh, Cummins and Stark and Hazelwood 
play four of the five games, then I think England will find it very, very difficult. And I think there's a really serious danger of the juggernaut approach. Much, much has happened to England against India uh, in the winter there. They're both environments, Australia and India, where you struggle to come back when you get behind. The demons set in, you start thinking you're up against the whole nation. The Australians have a fantastic way of being incredibly dismissive. So, you know, once, once you've lost one game, you hear so much about how utterly pathetic and hopeless you are. I, mean, I don't know how many sides have been the worst side ever to tour Australia. It's pretty much every side that loses in Australia is the worst side ever to come to Australia. And uh, <laughs> a bit of sort of a bit of early Bill Laurie. Early, early Bill Laurie, yeah. Oh, Tony. <laughs> can, um, can I challenge that just a little bit yeah. though, Dan? Because of I, I suspect that you're doing a very... Uh, we're talking about... Um, cultures here you're doing a very British thing and being very kind of magnanimous and, and talking England down I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that when you guys sit down among yourselves and discuss all you know how we're all animals in Australia etc and uh, there's a lot of things we need to learn about politeness I'm sure there's a small part of you saying let these guys talk let them build themselves up around hostility and the way they're going to sort of uh, win via hyper-aggression all that sort of stuff and you just watch sort of root and cook I mean surely those things are in your dreams you just sort of, you think maybe Jimmy will have a good series uh, Australia are a little bit vulnerable mm. I think that's what you guys actually think there's a deathly silence around English like cricket at the moment like that, like that Star Trek animal where the harder <laughs> you hit it the more yeah. it absorbs the, that it takes the power on and becomes that much stronger uh, there, there, um, there, there's a dormant uh, hope mm. there in English cricket at oh, the moment look every Englishman will, and woman will go to bed at night hoping, believe, not believing, hoping that what you have to say is right. And so it could get ugly quickly. Frankly, I mean, obviously that will upset me hugely, but I'll make a lot more money in Australia working on Australian radio and TV with a bit of luck if Australia are winning because no one wants a smug toff from yeah. Britain telling up saying yes I'm terribly sorry your chaps lost the last game <laughs> what they want is a human piñata go hi I came in so you come from uh, this most shitty little country England your guys are totally bloody hopeless they've lost again how do you feel uh, I love that when you put the Australian yeah. accent on you lose your baritone somehow well, it's like, we're going to go high yeah. Aussie accents be a high they're up here you know oh no I can't do the deep Aussie yeah. I can't do the growl yeah. it's tough um, it's not bad it's not bad uh, so yeah, I mean, there, there are swings and roundabouts. And yeah, I, so it works for you professionally if Australia uh, is going well. Yeah, I say that. You can be the I say that. I say that slightly flippantly. Yeah, yeah. but you know, I mean, Australians, Australians are much happier when they're winning, and yes. they and they enjoy. That's all we have. Yeah, and and you're magnificently graceless winners as well. So yes, you, you love to rub it in, and as luck would have it, because I spent many of my formative years, you know, from 1989 to 2005, I was uh, 20 to 36 years old. And I learnt a lot about losing in that time as an England fan against Australia. So it's not like at the age of 48, I'm going to be absolutely devastated mm -hmm. if England were to lose the Ashes. So I'm very happy if people pay me money <laughs> while they um, humiliate me I publicly. I mean, that's, that's fine. <laughs> The rivalry that England and Australia have is pantomime. It's wonderful. You know, I, I'm going to be brutally honest with you, and I, I don't like to admit it. I really, really like Australians, and I loved being in Australia. And it pains me to say it. Um, I do. I find them. They they have my kind of sense of humour. They um, I like them. 
this might be the last question, but uh, yeah. tell me about what I understand to be your cricketing hero. Yeah. Who is your cricketing hero and why? Well, he's not just my cricketing hero. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, he's cricketing, political, uh, emotional, educational, uh, moral tutor. Is uh, is a, a man who is often misunderstood as... A lot of people think he's Scottish, and he's not. He's as English as they come, really. And he's the great Douglas Robert Jardine, who, uh, when faced with one of the greatest dangers to world cricket, which was Donald Braddon, um, flat-track bully, um, obviously ridiculously good at batting, decided that there had to be a way, found a way, won, you know, and then got pilloried for it. And um, and also unfairly in your view. very well hugely unfairly. I mean, it, it exposed one of the one of the funnier aspects of, of Australian behaviour, which is that Australians, I think, even more than the British. I mean, every nation does it to a degree, but and everybody does it to a degree. But the the projection is so hilarious because ever since Bodyline, the English have been accused of being whinging poms, and it, the, of course, the people who invented whinging were the Australians because it was them that were complaining about an English team playing within the laws of cricket uh, it was just a bit of short stuff really. just, it was just a bit of short stuff mm. just a bit of short stuff and he, you know you just see him off Stan McCabe got 180 odd against him I mean he, he didn't have any problem and yeah and then when the Aussies went completely berserk because Bert Oldfield top edged a pull it wasn't even a hook <laughs> top edged a pull around about waist height into his own face I mean you can't blame Larwood for him using the edge of his bat absolutely hilarious and it gave us the great Woodfall line there's only one team out there playing cricket you know you can hear the tears rolling down the cheeks what's happened to it's cricket it's always Bill Laurie it's always Bill Laurie yeah <laughs> I bet Woodfall actually did have quite a deep voice uh, and, and so I mean yeah it, it was partly partly to have the guts to go and do that but also because of the way he stood he stood by his players and the way he treated Harold Larwood at a time when you know there was a massive class divide um, and the fact that he stuck by his principles and stuck, stuck to his guns and the fact that he was so treated so abysmally and was then replaced by the quizzling traitor Gubby Allen who went to Australia in 36-7 as England's captain and England won the first two games and I'm convinced to this day and mercifully everybody who played in it is now dead so I can't be sued that they chucked the last three games because of the, you know, the danger of a diplomatic incident which was appeasement in my view I mean, it was, and Britain had got previous with appeasement in the 30s, as we know. Gubby Allen would have been right there wiping Hitler's ass, I'm sure, if he'd been given the opportunity. So, uh, to me, Douglas Jardine represented everything that was good, worthwhile, and properly, properly British. And he wound up the Australians really badly. And the thing that I, I spotted the Australians doing so well throughout my lifetime is it's not, everyone says, oh, they're rude and they're uncouth and this and the other. I don't see them like that. I think they're really good at winding up the British. And if you fall for it, you're an idiot. Uh, with that in mind, Dan, thanks yeah. for uh, being the first guest on this, whatever this thing is, uh, and wishing you the best in Australia as well. And, uh, you know, Dan's put the call out. Guys, to anyone listen, listening, uh, he, he wants to be the target. So uh, give yeah. it to him, I think. But uh, also listen in to BBC TMS, one of the great commentators, Dan Norcross. Thank you very much. You won't be able to miss me because I'll be wearing a T-shirt which has got the entire innings for Australia against England at Trent Bridge that appeared in a tweet where you were all out for 60 and it appears on my T-shirt. And I should be wearing that, well, at least for the first day of the first Test match and then after that I may have to burn it. <laughs> Thank you. Cheers, <laughs> Dan.
That's great, mate. That's great. Are you upset that no one comes to watch you play cricket? Are you tired of no one appreciating you for the talented third grader you are? The Cricket Family is the first program dedicated to helping people like you feel relevant again. We have a database of over 1,000 out-of-work actors who can come to your games and masquerade as your friend, girlfriend, wife, parents or grandparents, helping you create the perception that the people close to you actually care about what you do. Great shot, Jason. No, I'm proud of you, son. The Cricket Family, helping cricketers feel relevant once again. Fantastic to hear there from uh, from Sam in London and Daniel Norcross, and also Adam Collins as well. I almost called him Colo, but I don't want to get too too colloquial on this podcast, even at this late stage. So thanks for tuning in. Hashtag AskTGC. It's probably the favourite time of the week for you. It's a favourite time of the week for me. <laughs> I don't know why it'd be the favourite time in your week. That's, that's, that's sad for you. Matt Trodden uses the hashtag AskTGC, gentlemen, and he says, how does a former grade leaguey deal with being belted around in a return to park cricket on postage stamp grounds? Yeah, this was one that came in a couple of days ago. He goes, and we did reply by inviting him to explore three free counselling sessions that the government offers through <laughs> Medicare. Don't ask me why I know about that. Um, also, let's not make fun of that uh, too much. But uh, also, I mean, there's a sometimes you can read into the premise of the question, and I think there is an identity problem, Matt. Uh, I do know Matt, actually, but it's an identity problem. You're referring to yourself as a former grade leggy uh, and maybe you, you were just a park leggy with respect. Mm. Uh, so, so you know, the fact that you bowled a ball of leg spin in grade cricket is actually the worst thing that you could have done because it's giving you identity issues since. Also, leg spin is the worst art ever unless you're shame worn. That's funny, actually, because I did actually bowl one ball of leg spin in grade cricket and my figures remained for seven years, 0.1 overs, none for four. So, and I, mm. to be fair, but I never identified myself, identified myself as a leg spin bowler in grey cricket. You should never do that. So, <laughs> some sports nuffy writes in, which sounds like I'm sledging him, but that is actually his Twitter name. And he says, at grey cricket, I've got a few last week. Dad has called me twice in two days. Are runs the currency for love or am I reading too much into this? Ask TGC. No, you never can be reading too far into anything. Um, some sports nuffy. Look, runs, <laughs> I, I think they are the currency for love. And that suits me, but I would say that if runs are the only currency, then I'm absolutely fucked if they do an audit. Um, I'd like to know more about the calls, though, boys. Um, The calls from the dad, what are they? Are they cricket-related? Are they life-related? What's dad talking to you about? Basically, I want to know what you're talking about with your dad um, in order to answer this question. I mean, this is interesting because Justin Langer referred to this in his book, uh, The Power of Passion, uh, written in... The late 2000s or mid 2000s, he also wrote in one of the captions of a picture. You know, you always go straight to the pictures in these books. Um, of and I don't know why I know this, but he he said runs are the only currency of any value. Uh, and he actually didn't finish that off by saying in cricket or in the game. He must have meant in life. Yeah. So uh, he's a big investor in Bitcoin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe runs are Bitcoin. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> runs at Bitcoin. Nothing means anything at some sports, Nuffy. Um, Andrew Donison writes in and he says, what is the perfect thing to bring for afternoon tea? Is it one, barbecue shapes, two, barbecue shapes, or three, last week's barbecue shapes? Dave, thoughts? Am I the only one here who genuinely <laughs> doesn't like shapes? Like, why did, why did <laughs> shapes become the default kind of go-to crisp bread brand for grade cricketers? There's, there's so many other options out oh, there. Yeah. 
He might, he might yeah. be Freudian, you know, cutting shapes on the circle mm, or bowling with yeah. some shape. shape. Right. Yeah. Just the word shape is part of the lexicon, I'm, I'm guessing. Is it just also like, it's the cheapest. Yeah, it, is, it does stick out. It does stick out on a shelf, doesn't it? Good branding. That's probably what, what gets great cricketers, very visual people. I was a big fan of chicken yeah. creepies. I know that's a part oh, yeah, of nothing. Creepies. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I don't know either. Uh, Paul uh, Zelenardo, uh, Zel- I've definitely pronounced that incorrectly. I apologise, Paul. Uh, hello at Grey Cricketer. There is an A-League player named Joey Champness. Views on this, please. Pez, Joey Champness. <laughs> oh, I'm just... Well, I've, I've included that in the run sheet and seen Dave shake his head, and that's pretty much all I needed, <laughs> to be honest. That's my view on it. Just wanted to introduce the term champion again, yeah, just to uh, my head feel on podcast. that blackness yeah. that we all feel with the word champ. But, uh, yeah, I guess he's the champ. Uh, no one would champ him. Mm. Uh, lads, Jordan Wright has uh, got back to us after a tweet that uh, one of you two posted, because it wasn't me, he said, uh, clubs now have academies where youngsters learn about the third net, casual alcoholism, and being lightly pressured into post-match nudity. So Jordan asks, uh, give in and secure your spot, or stay clothed and risk social isolation. Great cricketer, any advice? Oh, God. One of the great questions. Like, it, I mean, I think every person who's played grade cricket has been confronted with this. Mm, yeah. Because really, getting nude in the shower, like in the dressing room, is says so much about where your social capital and your social status mm. is going to be in any grade team. Yeah. And it's a particularly difficult thing, I would imagine, if you have a small <laughs> penis. Give in and secure your spot. It sounds like Harvey Weinstein. That that phrase. Um, it's definitely a Weinstein quote. Look, I'd recommend uh, that. What's his name? Sorry, I, I can't see who the, the person's Jordan. name was. Jordan. Jordan Wright. Jordan. I mean, I'd recommend that if this is a serious question, I would recommend that he does get nude, but you can still maintain a certain dignity in that nudity. Like, you don't have to. You don't have to linger in the showers afterwards, or you know, do any of that kind of weird stuff. You can just literally, literally, mm. just get in, clean yourself, avoid eye contact, and then get out. Make sure your towel is within mm. reaching distance at all times. Mm. Um, you can still mm. just have a shower, and um, and I think that will help with your career. But if you are actively avoiding the shower and being seen to do so, people are going to ask questions, and word will carry to the selection table. I think absolutely, Dave. Yeah, hide in plain sight is my advice because, like, the, probably the worst thing you can do is like either shower in shorts or your underwear because that just that it like it stands out. And so, hiding in plain sight by just being naked around mm-hmm. ten other blokes. You know, just completely normal. That's the best thing that you can do to advance not only cricket career, but your career. professional life. Mm. It, it, it's a real. Can we just stick with the shower thing? Because I think a lot of people will be listening closely for some advice on this. Like, it's a really strange thing as to where like, there's a lot going on with people's eyes in the dressing room after the match. But like when it comes to showers, because yeah. on the one hand, yeah. you're not Everywhere. meant to make eye contact with people, but on the other hand, everyone is watching everyone to see what they do with showers without looking specifically at their genitals or anything. Like you can be sure that when you've showered, everybody has seen whether you have uh, what what your penis looks like. Let's yeah. Really get to it because if it's get to a it. very large, if it's a very large penis, you'll then, you know, have a reputation for that, and that will become your sole identity. Is this? I mean, you're laughing here, guys. Am I? Do I sound perverted here, or am I going to be on my own with this? Because yeah. that's been my experience. Like, although it's never been a problem for people who have that situation because they tend to own it a yeah, lot, as you would. They? But if you, 
yeah. but if you try and hide, people will yeah. notice that as well. If you don't yeah. shower, people will notice that. So everyone's yeah. noticing everything you do without particularly looking at you. Well, mate. You've just so, summed up grade cricket right there. I think this is part of the greatest demise that is grade cricket because people don't shower anymore. Like, but like because grade cricket is becoming younger and younger, and and now that like the young people in in society outweigh the older people in the club changing room, now like the young kids they don't shower. They they don't want to shower in front of their colleagues. And uh, I mean, as strange as that may sound, that sentence, but like it just doesn't happen anymore. And like, you know, some of the greatest bonding experiences happen in the shower. It's where like, you know, you see like an old man sitting in a chair naked, you know, having a beer. Um, it's where like, it's where, you know, you get to judge people for the puber that, that they've, yeah. um, that they've assorted that week for the, for the Saturday night circuit. You know, all these things are great male bonding experiences. Mm. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> it was going so well. So, it was, it was I broke down because I couldn't take the things that I was saying seriously anymore. But yeah, seriously, like you know, people like, the, like they don't shower anymore. Great oh, cricket showers are becoming even danker. I always found it funny <laughs> that like you, you wouldn't see certain club volunteers all day, but as soon as the showers go on, they're suddenly all in the change room. <laughs> I mean, there's not, nothing that attracts you know fifty plus yeah, age with club volunteers, male, than the showers. <laughs> yeah. It's always good sailing close to the wind. Yeah, well, you were saying that it's a great male bonding experience and that the fact is young people aren't showering. I mean, there must Mm. be a reason for that. Perhaps young people are uh, waking up to the idea that not only is there great club bonding experiences or male bonding experiences, there's probably also sexual harassment as well. Um, and maybe they just don't want that anymore. Yeah. I reckon reckon legitimately it's because of, like, they feel much higher, like, body... Uh, image issues because of social media. Like, legitimately, that's why I think they, they, they're like, uh, you know, they feel like they have to look like, um, you know, fitness models on Instagram, basically, to, to feel mm-hmm. confident with taking their shirt off in the showers. Whereas, obviously, like, when we played in the 90s, early 2000s, you know, like, it was, like, obviously, the character in our book, Nugsy, is just, he just loves being naked and he's got the worst rig of all, but he's strong. And, you know, so that's mm-hmm. like... I don't know. I don't know. It's just a theory. I think we went on the massive tangent there. Yeah, it's just um, a theory. What did Jordan ask? Something about, something about tea. Right. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it's impo- important con- conversations. Yeah, Jordan, don't, don't take your clothes off if you don't want to, mate. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's roll on. Joel Stewart says, uh, what is the most yuck of the following three scenarios? A keeper wearing short sleeves, batting pads, and a bucket Terry toweling hat. Two, a medium pace bowler coming off a 15-plus step run-up wearing his cap backwards and servo sunnies. Oh, Christ. Oh my God. Three, a batsman that never wore gloves and played in a white short sleeve business shirt. I ask this because all three scenarios were on display weekly back at my cricket club on the far south coast of New South Wales. As soon as I moved to Sydney and played great, I realised just how utterly fucked this is. <laughs> Hashtag not great cricket. Good question. Oh, well, yeah. it's a really good question, Joel, and I really appreciate your attention to detail uh, just going through these ones. So one, a keeper wearing short sleeves, batting pads, and a Terry toweling hat. Yes, it's it's shocking, but it's semi plausible. Mm. Short sleeve keeping stuff. It's te- it's absolutely terrible, but it's semi plausible. Medium pace d- bowler off of yeah. Go on, Higa. Sorry, sorry, Pez. I just I just noticed looking at the highlights from uh, England's um, match against uh, the the WA eleven that um, Johnny Bairstow wicket keeping was wicket keeping in a. Um, Greek chapel hat, for lack of a better phrase, and it's just all sorts of yuck. 
that's just a sun mm. protection mechanism. Short like yeah, that. Yeah, because English guys get very worried he's very when they come fair. out. He's very fair, Johnny. I mean, it's it's mm. functional, but you know, I don't so think it excuses condom. it. But like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't think it excuses at all. He goes, uh, and then so you got you got a medium pace bowler coming off fifteen plus step run up. I just like that that added detail. Yeah, um, wearing his cap backwards and servo sunnies, and I like that. I like that he has servo sunnies as mm. though. If he sort of had some premium sunnies, it might be a little bit more plausible. Mm. Again, I can, you know, you you see people wearing their cap backwards bowling in the net, so it's semi-plausible. Like, Mm. I think the worst is the batsman that never wore gloves, like never wore gloves, not just in that (laughs) match. Um, Well, I guess that that might have been a Bradman thing too, and played in a white short sleeve business shirt. Now, this is what I want to know about, the white short sleeve business (laughs) shirt. Why is it short sleeve? That's Is that Mormonism? Which, again, no religious discrimination, but who has a white short sleeve (laughs) business shirt unless... That there's no your, such thing. Uh, there's no face. such thing as a as a short white short sleeve business shirt. Not not a business That's shirt. A thing. You, there are casual kind nah. of button up white short sleeve shirts that people do use, you know, when conducting business. But it's not a proper business shirt. Um, I know because I've got one and I plan on wearing it during the summer months here in Sydney at work. But to be honest, out of those three, I mean. The gloves one is obvious, but I just think the sight of a medium pace bowler running up with his cap backwards in, and servo sunnies in you know the far south coast of New South Wales that is disgusting. And I'm not surprised this bloke moved to Sydney just to, probably just to get away from that on a weekly basis because that is just mm. utterly fucked. <laughs> Lads, in the interest of time, I'm just going to roll through the next two. Um, Sam Ty writes in a couple of weeks ago and he said, How much kit have you had to return to Ed Cowan after his segment on the show last week was used as ammo to drop him? <laughs> Fair question. Uh, and then uh, MJ Noster says, uh, At Grey Cricketer, be good or fuck off. Third book title. I mean, it's certainly in contention at the moment. Uh, Pez, I'll let you, I'll let you uh, ask the last question before we wrap up the show this week. <laughs> this is a lot. This, I really like this question, boys. I wanted to read it out to you and get your views on it. It's from Ace241394. Doesn't mm-hmm. sound like a spy at all. Uh, <laughs> dear TGC, so just, just bear with me here. Dear TGC, upon listening to the first couple of podcasts this season, my suspicions have been confirmed that your contribution to cricket goes beyond portraying and championing a rare and perhaps slowly dying subculture in our society, but rather aims to heighten its awareness by poking fun at its absurdity. This anti-cricket movement draws very distinct parallels to the French artist Marcel Duchamp, or Duchamp, <laughs> whose work during the World War One era was criticised at the time for being anti-art, but later went on to become regarded as the most influential contribution to art in the 20th century, and Duchamp himself <laughs> has often been referred to as the father of postmodernism. In becoming the fathers of cricket postmodernism, does this sit well with you at all? Discuss. Hashtag AskTGC. P.S. Love the show, guys. Hope this gets mentioned. We'll give you some gloves. <laughs> I'm fucking stoked with the gloves, first off. Thanks, Ace. Yeah. That is very good. That's a very good question. It does sit very well with me. I'm not sure about you guys, but this is a huge compliment, really, to what we do or what we strive to be doing over the years. So when I saw this one come in, I actually did, you know, it, it, it intrigued me because I wasn't aware of Duchamp or Duchamp or however Marcel pronounces his last name, probably Duchamp. Um, and I found out that he, he, even though he is considered the father of of the uh, one, you know, one of the well-known art movements in in some respects. He hated painting. He just absolutely hated it. 
He didn't want to make works of art that produced any kind of aesthetic experience or even an intellectual experience. He was just interested in ideas, not visuals, which obviously goes against the grain of everything we know about cricket, which is that looking good is all that matters. He did not care for that. He didn't want a bar of that. Um, and all I can think is that maybe off the back of this, we should be curating some kind of conceptual art exhibition based on grim grade cricket experience. <laughs> maybe we already are. This just is a postmodern art exhibition. God. Or maybe we just talk about getting nude in the showers. You decide. It's all art. Art installation. Pez, any thoughts on Ace's question? Uh, no, that, that was pretty much it. Like, I think mm. if you're part of postmodernism, then you can't really say that you greatly love that quote or what um, Ace has written and you've got it framed on your wall and you show it to your uh, your wife and your dad and say, see, there's actually there's actual meaning behind this. You don't do that. You um, you just say, thanks, champ. I don't get it. What a, what a, rare, what a rare question. That's fucking rare. Guys, it's been an absolutely wonderful show this week. Thanks as ever to the fans for, for tuning in each week. We really appreciate it. We love this very much. If you could um, be so kind to, to take 30 seconds out of your day to review this on iTunes, that really helps us. It's been an absolute um, shock and a pleasure for us to uh, get as high as number one on the charts in Australia. Um, we love, we fucking love making this show and we, we love all the feedback that we get for it. Um, there's a book out. You can get it. Actually, people have been really good using the hashtag thanks cricket with pictures of the book. That's awesome. Um, we really love that as well instagram facebook twitter we're all on it tell your mates see you next week